Well, this morning we return to 1 Timothy. If you have your Bibles, or if you don't have one, you could probably find one in the pew in front of you. 1 Timothy chapter 6, where we're going to be looking at fleeing, fighting, and keeping. You know, one of the the things you have to learn when you're first getting into this preaching thing is not to pick too big of a text. Because when uh, you pick a big text, um, it's very difficult to get through it. And uh, without speaking real fast and without stuttering and stammering, a lot of times when you're inexperienced, you look at you know a passage that's four or four and a half verses long, and you think to yourself, "Man, it only takes 20 seconds to read it. I mean, you know, what am I going to do the rest of the time?" And uh, you begin to get fearful, so you pick a big passage, and that way you will have lots to say. And the problem is, you start studying the passage, you find so much in the passage that you realize, "Boy, I could never say this." And then you wish you would have picked a smaller one, but by then it's too late. Well, this morning, I have purposely picked a passage that is too big. And the reason I have done that is because every single thing in this passage, we have already covered multiple times throughout the book. Paul is concluding the book to Timothy. And he is summarizing some of the major things that Timothy needs to be reminded of. Pretty much everything in this book is said two or three or four or five or six or seven or eight times. And this is no different. And so I'm not going to go into great detail on each one of these things, even though I could. There are some things in here that I thought, boy, I could just, you know, burrow down deep and stay here for a long time. So if you think, boy, he's kind of rushing along this morning, I am. And I'm doing this on purpose. And uh, we are going to try and finish Timothy in, uh, this week and three more And then we'll be beginning a series on the Old Testament, which I think you will find very interesting and very, just just a great blessing, just very fun. There's some great things just about the Old Testament in general, and then we're going to be getting into Psalm 145 and do a series on the attributes of God from that psalm. But if you look in verse 11, why don't you follow along as I read the text. Paul says, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and which you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. Now, we'll just stop there because then that rest of verse 15 and verse 16 gets into some other great stuff that you'll hear about next week. But first, we just need to ask ourselves, what do we learn from this text? Paul seems to be coming. He is coming to a close, but he seems to be wanting to say everything he can at the end of the letter. But, of course, he can't say everything. So he tries to make some general, broad, categorical statements that will encompass or restate everything he has already told Timothy in order to kind of conclude the book. And first he says that a Christian should be known by what they flee from and run to. Second, he says in this text that a Christian should be known by what they fight for. And third, he says a Christian is to be known by their obedience to the Word of God. And those are the three main categories that Timothy or Paul addresses to Timothy in this text. So let's look at all of these and one at a time, starting in verse 11. Look there, Paul says, but flee from these things. Now just stop there for a moment. First we notice this little contrasting word, but, in there. And that is there because he's making a contrast. He has just finished talking about all these sins that Timothy is to avoid. Now he is contrasting... Those who get entangled in, for instance, the love of money or greed or whatever. And he says, but flee from these things. Instead of getting caught by them, flee from them. He has just talked about false teachers who indulge their flesh, who use the money for their own. And now he's saying, I want you to run like a madman, like a scalded gorilla from these people. Now, the word flee is the word fugo. It's a great word. It's the word we get fugitive from. Paul is saying, Timothy, I want you to be a fugitive from these things. 
A fugitive is one who is running, you know, running from the police. He's doing everything he possibly can not to get caught. And that is what Paul has in mind here. Timothy, do not get caught by these sins. And it is a present tense, which means you are to always be running and always be fleeing and always running away from the sins that will entangle you and capture you. It is the same word Paul used in 1 Corinthians 6.18. Do you remember that text where Paul says, flee immorality? Same word. It's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 10.14 when he says, flee idolatry. It's the same word he uses in 2 Timothy 2.22 when he says, flee from youthful lusts. All of these things we are to be fleeing from. Flee, run, be a fugitive. And so that's what he lays out here for Timothy to do and for us to do as well. Now, this text, again, the whole book is written to an individual, but the individual receives instructions because of what he is, which is a leader. And the leaders receive instruction because they are to be models for the sheep. So while this was specifically written to Timothy, it is for all leaders so that they can model what all believers are to be. So this is really for all of us, not just for those called to preach and teach the word of God. Now, the, these things, when he says flee from these things, talk about the false doctrine that he has just mentioned. The conceit, the envy, the strife, using the ministry for personal gain, discontentment, the love of money. All of these things are the these things. Flee from these things. And look at what Paul calls Timothy. This is really significant. You man of God. You man of God. There is only one person in the New Testament who received this title. And that was Timothy, you man of God. It's a significant term. If you go into the Old Testament, you find people like Moses, Elijah, Elisha, King David, and even the angel of the Lord called man of God. And as you look at all the prophets and all the people who were given that title, they were all men who received revelation from God and were called to proclaim God's truth to God's people. That's what the man of God is, a proclaimer of the truth of God. And of course, Timothy was called into that ministry. And so when Paul uses that term, you men of God, he is reminding Timothy of what he is so that Timothy will act like what he is, which is be a proclaimer of the truth of God. Now, in the New Testament, in Timothy's case, in our case today, we don't receive direct revelation from God. We have to get it from another place. And you can turn to 2 Timothy, a couple pages over. Chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, and you can find out where the man of God today receives his ammunition to do battle. Paul says in verse 16, he has just finished saying that Timothy, through the Old Testament scriptures, came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, there's our term, may be equipped for every good work. Paul tells us here that anyone who aspires to be a man of God, or you could say a woman of God, has only one source, one source that will equip them to do what they need to do. And that is the Word of God, the Scriptures. If he is going to teach... It's from the scriptures. If he is going to correct, it's from the scriptures. If he is going to reprove, it's from the scriptures. If he's going to train, it's from the scriptures. If he is going to be trained and equipped himself to do what God wants him to do, it's from the scriptures. Man of God is always and only equipped by the scriptures. And that's why we have seen, and I don't even need to remind you, over and over again, all the way through the book, the constant study and to train and to read and to teach and to be absorbed into, to take pains with and to be constantly nourished up by the words of the faith. All of these things have constantly been stated because the man of God works in the trade of the word of God for the people of God. Now, in the Greek, the emphasis of verse 11 does not fall on flee. It follows on you. 
man of God. If you have the New King James Version, or maybe the English Standard Version, you would read, But you, O man of God, flee from these things. If you had the English Standard Version, it would read similarly, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Why is that? Well, in Greek, you can change words around in a sentence, because the endings in prefixes of the words tell you what part of the sentence they are. So if you want to emphasize something, you can take something and bring it up front for emphasis. Here, the Greek literally reads, You, O man of God, flee from these things. There is a very specific and very direct address here from Paul to Timothy and anybody who aspires to be a man or woman of God that you, and then the NSB leaves out O, but it's in the text, O man of God, flee from these things. So there's a strong personal emphasis, first to Timothy, then to any leader or pastor or teacher, and finally to Christians who are to follow their example. Now, every one of us should aspire to the title man or woman of God. And even though not all of us are gifted to preach and teach, or not all of us are called to that ministry, all of us are called to have the character qualities that the man of God is to have. All of us are required to use our spiritual gifts for what God intends. Not all of us have the gift of teaching. Some have help, some have encouragement or whatever. But all of us must use those gifts If we are going to be a man or woman of God. Now there is something very important that you need to understand about the man of God's fleeing. The man of God is not just to flee aimlessly. He has a very directed fleeing. You've probably seen the bumper stickers that say, well, just say no to drugs. But what they don't tell you to do is what to say yes to. Often people will flee from one sin only to be caught in another. You know, they will jump out of the frying pan into the fire, run from the bear to be caught by the lion. And so many Christians are the same way. Now, I've got to run from this, and they run, but aimlessly. They have no direction to their fleeing. That is why Paul says what he does in verse 11. He says, flee from these things, you man of God, and what? Pursue. Pursue. That tells us that our fleeing is to be in a specific direction. We are to be directed in our fleeing. Now, you could have this be a second or point to the sermon. I could have, you know, flee, pursue. um, But think about it. If you are fleeing like God wants you to flee, you are also what? Pursuing what God wants you to pursue. And you cannot be pursuing what God wants you to pursue... Unless you are what? Fleeing from those things God calls you to flee from. They are really one and the same thing. One is a from and the other is a towards. A fleeing and a pursuing. But both happen together and they have to happen together. Otherwise you aren't obeying this text. Now the great thing here is that Paul gives us six specific things that we can pursue in our fleeing and our pursuing. First, notice what the text says. He says, flee from these things, you men of God, and pursue. And the first thing he mentions is righteousness. The quality of being right or just before God. Righteousness has to do with external acts. What people can see in your life. What do people see when they look at your life? You know, it's getting pretty scary now. They have those little micro cameras and they're putting them all over the place. What if somebody had a little micro camera and watched you all day? What would they see? What would the video reveal? What would they see your priorities were? What would they see of your speech? What would they see of your devotion to Christ, your honesty, your time in the word, prayer? What would they see? Righteousness is the external manifestation of a personal heart commitment to God. You can do the outsides without the inside. But if you have your heart right with God, you will do those external things. That's what righteousness is. Now, the internal part is the second quality. The second thing the man of God pursues is godliness. Look there, godliness. This is the same word that has appeared seven other times in the book. And we've gone over this over and over again. It is godly piety. It is reverence. That 
is from within that produces that external acts of righteousness. It is the quality of a person's heart, his attitudes, his, his mindset, which gives him the, the commitment and the devotion and the desire to do those righteous acts for the glory of God. So he says, pursue this righteous behavior and pursue godliness from within that produces the righteous behavior. And then thirdly, the man of God produces faith. Faith. Now, this is the standard word for faith. It means to believe, to trust, to commit oneself to, to have passions in a direction. Now, are you a person of faith? I mean, think about it. You think, well, yes, you know, I have a faith. Yeah, but do you pursue faith? Well, how do you do that? Well, we know the scriptures say faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ in the context of evangelism. We, we preach the word and people hear the word. They hear the gospel. They repent. They believe. And that believing is faith. He says, pursue faith. But it is not only to believe the facts of something. That's knowledge. You may believe certain things that the Bible says, but unless you are willing to engage your will to do them, you don't believe, you doubt, or you disbelieve. Faith is the knowledge put into attack. It is a commitment, a volition behind the knowledge so that you're doing what you say you believe. You say, well, yeah, you know, a Christian needs to read their Bible, but... I don't read mine. Well, then you don't have faith in that. You actually doubt that. Because if you had faith, you would do it. And listen to this. Faith is the soil where love grows. Biblical love. You cannot love like God commands you to love unless you have faith. Faith is... The crown of every Christian. It is the biggest gem on that crown. And it is the thing that not only births you and brings you into the body of Christ, but it is that which produces love in your life for Christ and for other people. When you look in the Bible, you will find over and over again faith and love together. Faith and love together. You look at a tree, you don't see its roots. But you know that the only reason it has all those branches and all those leaves and that it's alive is because of the part that you can't see. Faith cannot be seen, but the work of faith can be seen. Do you remember what James said in James chapter 2? You show me your faith without your works, I will show you my faith what? By my works. In other words, true faith produces works, but isn't the work itself. It is the belief that produces those righteous acts. And those righteous acts are acts of love, both to God and to one's neighbor. And that's why he says what he does in the next point, where he says, but flee from these things, you men of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, and love. Those are like twin gazelles. Those are like Siamese twins. They're a compound that are found all the way through the New Testament. I, I went through and I, there was a ton of them. But let me just give you some examples. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14. Probably forgot. I probably need to preach through the book again. It's been so long. But look in verse 14. Paul is talking about how he was this blasphemer and violent aggressor and how he acted ignorantly in unbelief. And look at what he says in verse uh, 14. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. There they appear together. And if you were to look, for instance, at Galatians 5, 6, Paul says it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. What matters is faith working in love. All the way through the book of Ephesians, over and over again, he talks about faith and love and faith and love and, you know, that you would be rooted and grounded in faith and that it would produce this love. And, and the whole book is faith and love. In Thessalonians, it's the same thing. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul thanks God for their work of faith and labor of love. In 3, 6, he says that the news of their faith and love has spread abroad. And in chapter 5, verse 8, he tells them to put on the breastplate of faith and love. You cannot separate the two. You cannot separate the two. If you look in your life and you just think, well, I'm just, 
I'm just not loving people. And I'm not talking about some weak emotion, some sentimental feeling. I'm not talking about you feeling good. I'm talking about love that does what is best for the other person based on the word of God. A lot of times we do things as Christians, they are not fun. It was not fun for Paul to write the severe letter to the Corinthians, but he had to do it. And why did he do it? Because he loved them. That's what he says. The scriptures say God disciplines every son whom he loves. Well, love is not fun. It's not fun confronting people in sin. It's not fun a lot of times doing a lot of things in the ministry, but you do them, why? Because they're the right thing. Because love does not do what feels good. Love does what is best. Love is not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's a doing. It's an act. Now, of course, there are always emotions that come in the context of that, but that is not what true biblical love is. And so when Paul talks about, I want you to pursue faith, which comes from the study of the scriptures and practice of the scriptures. And I want you to pursue love. That is, I want your faith, which comes from your study of the scriptures, to be acted out in your life. He then goes on to say, I want you to also pursue perseverance. Perseverance. Or you could say endurance. Steadfastness. It's a compound of two words, to remain or to stay to abide, and then to place under. It's really to stay under, to abide under, to hold up under some sort of load or stress. Weiss word studies in the Greek New Testament says, it describes a man who remains under trials in a God-honoring manner. Thayer in his lexicon says, it is the characteristic of a man who is unswerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. Unswerved. It doesn't matter what comes into their life. You just know that you are not going to deviate from this path. You are going to stay at it and you are going to do what's right because you love God and you want to give Him glory and honor. And there are many Christians who used to be in the race, who used to teach Sunday school, who used to be in the ministry, who used to read their Bibles, used to do a lot of things, and they didn't have this quality, and so they just used to be. They have ceased being what God commands us to be, perseverers. That's why we must pursue this perseverance, and it only comes if I'm doing all the rest of those things mentioned. You have to flee from sin. You have to pursue Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and perseverance in all of those things. You know, some people, instead of graduating from college, have just gone back to elementary school, like the people in Hebrews 5.11, you know, you, you should be teachers by now, but now you need somebody to teach you the elementary principles of God. Why? Because they have not discerned and learned to train their senses to practice their faith. They have just soaked up knowledge. I mean, you know, it's great to go to college. It's great to get an education, but it's better to start supporting yourself with that education. To do something with the knowledge instead of just stuffing it in your head. And some of you have been in boot camp way too long. You've made it your permanent residence. It's time to get out there, get in the battle, do it. Six, the man of God pursues gentleness. Probably a better word would be meekness. This is a great word. Trench says, it is the temper of spirit in which we accept God's dealings with us as good and therefore without Disputing or resisting. We accept God's dealings with us as good without grumbling or disputing. You know, God is sovereign, right? You say, yeah, God's sovereign. You know that God knows all things. And you also know God knows all things before they happen. You know God is all-powerful, 
and you know that nothing is impossible with him. And if he wanted to, he could change anything before it happened. And you know that nothing happens to you that God does not first know about. And you know that God causes all things to work together for your good. You know that his grace is sufficient for you. And you know that whatever you experience, whatever comes into your life is for your good. And so when you know those things about God and a trial comes, like let's say you're moving here from out of state and your stuff doesn't arrive. Or let's say you're printing up a sermon in the morning and all of a sudden your printer cartridge dries up. I knew a guy that happened to <laughs> this morning. All of these things are things that happen to you by the very decree of God. Now you're thinking, well, I, you know, I'm suggering with sickness or I have a relationship problems or there's this sin in my life or whatever it is. Well, I want you to know this. You are where you are because God has you there. And if he wanted to, he could move you somewhere else. You work where you work because of God. You have the gifts that you have because of God. All the things you have are because of God, and He is in control, and He does whatever He pleases, the Scripture says. And so this quality of gentleness or meekness is the ability to live life realizing God is in control. So that even if every single thing you had was lost in one fell swoop, you could say, naked, I came into the world, naked, I shall leave. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what he's talking about here. So, the man of God, while he's fleeing from sin, pursues righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness or meekness. Now, is this easy? Is this easy? For not even close. That's why he says what he does in the next verse. Look there, second point, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. The word fight here is a Greek word, agonizomai. We've encountered it before, just like everything else in this text. Agonizomai, to agonize. It was a word used in the Greek games, and just like everything else, it's a present active tense, which means always be battling, battling, and battling, battling. It means to engage in strenuous conflict, to really work hard. And struggle and strive to overcome in either battle or competition. It was used primarily in the Greek games. When people said, oh yeah, that person's agonizing, they would think of the Greek games. Remember, Paul was a Roman citizen. He was trained at the University of Tarsus and he had the best education, the best teacher. And he would know all about the Roman games, the Greek games. And Timothy's father was a Greek and he would know all about them too. So when Paul says, Timothy... I want you to war the good warfare or fight the good fight or engage in the good engagement. What would come to mind? Well, it wouldn't be what comes to mind when we think of professional sports today like basketball or football or baseball where people who are gifted and talented get paid incredible sums of money. I mean, they get paid more than policemen and doctors and firemen and people are saving people's lives Huge sums of money. Why? Because our society loves sports. It's a money-making venture. And you know, if they lose the game, they still get paid. But here, for instance, in Paul's day, if you were a boxer, you'd have boxing gloves, you know, leather gloves, fur in the inside, fine. Some metal, like iron, sewed to the fist for the purpose of pulverizing your opponent, maybe even killing them. And if you weren't killed in the agonizomai of boxing, they would gouge out your eyes if you lost. The gladiators would fight unto death. 
And so when Paul uses this term, what would be conjured up in the minds of Timothy and what should be conjured up in my, our minds is not just, well, yeah, you know, we should probably, you know, go out and play a game of basketball by the school, get sweaty and come home and have lunch. He's talking a life and death struggle here. He's saying, Timothy, I want you to just pour yourself. You cannot lose. And you have all the resources you need to not lose. Fight the good fight. Good means not just good from inside, like morally good, but good as invisible to others. There's two different kinds of good in the Greek. This is a visible good. Fight a fight which everybody can see in your life. And they can see you as an example, as a model that you can follow. Fight that way. Now you ask yourself, well, Jack, what are we supposed to fight? Well, Paul doesn't say here, but let me just tell you quickly. Satan, demons, error in the minds of men, and our own flesh. In Ephesians 6.12, it says, Our battle is against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Demon, Satan. In 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 5, it tells us we have divinely powerful weapons for the destruction of fortresses. It says those fortresses are speculations and every lofty thought raised up in defiance against God. In other words, Satan deceives men, demons deceive men, and then it is the job of the Christian soldier to go forth, pull out the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and to confront error with truth. That's what it means to battle. James 4.1 and 1 Peter 2.11 speak of fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. We're all familiar about that. I mean, if you were on a desert island and Satan was thrown into the pit with all his demons, you'd still sin. Why? Because you have the sin-cursed flesh. So you're constantly waging war. That's why Paul called himself, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? All of these things we battle against all of our life, a ever-continuing, never-ending battle. And if you don't always battle, you'll be in trouble. Now, when Paul says the good fight of faith, what is he talking about here? Well, he has just talked about, remember, pursue faith. Here he has something different in mind because there is the word the in front of it in the Greek. It is the faith. It's fight the good fight of the faith is how it literally reads. It means everything that Christianity is, everything that it means to be a Christian in service under the Lord Jesus Christ, the faith. Remember how Jude described it in Jude verse 3? It is the contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. What is he talking about? Everything, all the truth of the scriptures, contend, do battle. For that faith, that's what he's saying. It's a good fight of the faith. In other words, stick to the scriptures and what they teach and you're battling. Listen, the way of sin is easy, isn't it? All you have to do is quit trying and you will sin. You know, whatever comes naturally is sin. I mean, it happens in marriage, it happens in parenting, it happens in everything. You know, if you do what comes naturally, it's sinful. You have to make yourself do what is right. Our lusts are always pulling us downstream, away from God. Satan's temptations always blow in the direction of our lusts. And if you just do nothing, you know, and do the let go and let God thing, you will be washed down into the Dead Sea. If you are going to fight the good fight, you must make a commitment to swim against the current your entire life. I remember when I was in Indiana when I was a young boy and there was this big river and I was a good swimmer. I swam all the time and we were swinging in ropes out into this river. And when you looked at the river, it looked still, it looked almost like a lake. It was big, muddy. And uh, something was interesting. You would swing out there and you'd land in the water and you're kind of relaxing out there and realize, you realize when all the bushes are moving by, you're, you're going downstream. <laughs> Swim, swim. And so you'd have to constantly, if you got in the water, be constantly going upstream because if you didn't, you're going down. Down. And that's how it is as a Christian. If you aren't fighting the good fight, you're going down. If you aren't constantly making an effort to pursue the things of God, you're going down. 
There is no neutral state. This kind of idling in the middle of the current, you're either going against the current or you're getting washed down by the current. Your lusts are either taking over and Satan's tempting you and you're succumbing to that or you're pursuing the things of God. And I'm sorry to say, it has to happen the rest of your life. The rest of your life. You don't get to retire from fighting the good fight. Second, Paul says, not only is he to fight the good fight, look at the text. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. When you're being tempted to go downstream, when your lust is trying to blow you down and the current is going there, there's a rope you can hold on to. You grab hold of the rope of the eternal life to which you were called. Now that is an interesting phrase. What does Paul mean by take hold of the eternal life to which he was called? He's not saying, Timothy, get saved. We know that. He's already saved. So what can he mean? Well, when you look at the scriptures, you find something very interesting about eternal life. Eternal life, we, a lot of times we think of eternal life as, you know, living forever. Eternal life. But in the scriptures, it's actually something different. It includes living forever, but it's actually a quality of life. It is the quality of life you receive when you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and will be in His presence and blessed forever, eternal life. Now, when you're saved, when you place your faith in Christ and you repent of your sins, and you're saved. Now, is that just ticket to heaven? Escape from hell, period. No. Why? Because when you come to Jesus Christ, you are switching masters, aren't you? Satan was your master, now Christ is. You were a child of the devil, now you're a child of God. You've been adopted into the family of God. You have been bought with a price. You're no longer your own. You're now a slave of your master, who is Jesus you have been, become a soldier of Jesus Christ. You're put into service and you've been given your resources by your master to wage war. And he's saying, listen, Timothy, I want you to take hold of the eternal life not being saved, but all the consequences and responsibilities that come with being saved. Using your talents, your resources, your time, your spiritual gifts for the glory of God, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And of course, in Timothy's case, in the case of elders and pastors and teachers and overseers, it's to devote yourself to prayer and ministry of the word. That is the major thing that they are called. You may have a different gift. You may have a different calling. You have to do something different. But I'll tell you, if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you have spiritual gifts, and you need to be using them in this body. You have to. You can't just stay in boot camp all your life. Come here and go, oh, great sermon. Great sermon. Great sermon. Well, man, when are you going to do something? You're an expert. Knowledge. But your knowledge has not become love until you put it into action and begin to use your spiritual gifts in a way that glorifies God. Now, Paul says here, to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, what is this? When did Timothy make a public confession? Well, it could have been at his baptism, because when he was baptized, he would be in front of people. And if you've come here to baptism, you've seen people give a confession of their faith in Christ, and they're wanting to follow Christ, and that's fine. But probably he refers to his commissioning, his ordination, his, his, um, his being sent out. You remember Timothy was discipled by his grandmother and mother, and then... He followed Christ and was kind of adopted by Paul as a spiritual child. And Paul poured into him. And finally, it became obvious that he had some gifts. And unlike most people, we know from 1 Timothy 1, what is it, verse 18. Paul says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Oh, there it is again. But remember that 
Timothy had prophecies, actually divine utterances saying, Timothy, you are called to this ministry. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, some of you are out there going, gosh, I want to serve. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. You know, I tried two and three-year-olds and almost killed me. (laughs) And others of you think, well, you know, I thought I was going to teach. And I went and I started teaching a class and it emptied the class. But Timothy knew exactly what he was supposed to do because he had a prophetic utterance which said, Timothy, you're called to the gospel ministry to be a preacher, an evangelist. Go do it. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. Paul references this again. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. So... I think what Paul is talking about here is this confession that Timothy made in front of the elders at Lyconium in Lystra, I think it's Acts 16, where Timothy was commissioned by the elders to go with Paul because he was a gospel preacher. And so Paul's saying, listen, you were called to this ministry and you made that confession. You made that confession. You have been called to fight the good fight. Now, he then moves on to describe how exactly Timothy is to do this. And again, in general terms, he's summing up almost the whole book in these, these three verses or four verses here. He says, Timothy, you need to keep the commandment. Look at verse 13 through 15. This is all, this is two and a half verses, all focusing, all hubbed around one command. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the proper time. Well, Paul charges one, somebody, he's dead serious. And here he is dead serious. I charge you. It's the same phrase he used in... 1 Timothy 1.3, when he says, instruct certain men not to teach sound doctrine. It is a charge, a verbal commanding. And he says, and do it in the presence of God. In other words, I'm charging you in the presence of God because God's watching you, Timothy. He's the one who gave you the gift. He's the one who gave you affirmation through prophetic utterance. He's watching. I charge you in the presence of God. And then he doesn't stop there to make the command worse. He says, who gives life to all things? Do you realize that you and I, Timothy included, only live because of God? I mean, he is the creator. He gives us breath. Every breath you breathe right now as you're sitting there in the pew breathing, it's because of God. All the health you have or all the sickness you have, all the money you have or all the money you don't have, all the gifts you have, every resource you have, everything you have has been given to you by God. So, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God the very God who is giving you life right now. You could be in the lake of fire, Timothy. You deserve to be in the lake of fire. And God is keeping you alive right now so you can give Him glory. So do it. Fulfill your calling. Then he goes on to say that not only are you to realize God is watching, the very God who gives life to all things, but also because Christ Jesus, he says testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. What's that about? Well, let me remind you. When Jesus was before Pilate in John 18, 36 and 37, this is what transpired. Pilate was there before Jesus and Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. For this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. And everyone who is of truth hears my voice. Did you see that? Jesus says, Listen, you know why I came? to testify the truth, and I'm giving that confession right now. Well, what was Timothy supposed to do? Testify the truth. And so he was leaping, he's heaping all these things on the command, which is coming up next, not only in the presence of God, not only the God who gives life to all things, 
Not only that, but remember Jesus, who stood before Pilate, testified to the truth, and was crucified because of it. All of that is to tell you that you need to keep the commandment. And he says, the commandment. Now you're thinking, a single commandment? Well, no. Just like the faith, he is talking about all that he has told him. Keep all of this, Timothy. And a while back, we went through and looked at all the different things just in 1 Timothy that an elder or leader is supposed to do and be. is scary. And all of that, Timothy has to do. I mean, it can be summed up and, you know, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Or you could expand it to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Or everything else in the Bible that we are to do or not do. That is what the commandment is. When he says keep, it literally means to watch over or guard. Just as museums watch over and guard valuable things, Timothy is to watch over the very valuable truth that has been given to him. Paul calls it the deposit in 2 Timothy. And he gives two qualifiers, doesn't it? Look there in the text. Without stain or reproach. This word without stain is the same word used in 1 Peter 1.19 of Jesus whose blood was spotless without stain. It is to be pure and undefiled by anything else. You see, as a minister or even as a Christian, you need to live your life without stain. You know, you, you go out to lunch today after church or go home for lunch, you eat something, you spill it on your clothes. What happens? Well, you better get it off of there. Quick. And the longer you leave it on there, the better possibility there is that it's going to stain. 1 John 1.9 says, If we are always and continually confessing our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's exactly what he's saying here. Timothy, make sure you keep your sins confessed. On some sins are of such a huge nature, you commit them, it's permanent die. You have disqualified yourself in the ministry. But Paul is just saying, just keep short tabs on your sins, Timothy. Minister without stain. Why? Because if you have stains on your life, then you can't be without reproach. And remember from chapter 3, we learned an elder must be what? Beyond reproach, beyond reproach. If you're deacon, beyond reproach. You can't be beyond reproach if your life is stained with sin. Third, we are given a time reference telling us how long we need to do this. Look at the end of verse 14 and the beginning of verse 15. We are to keep it until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. And one of the fun things to do, Lisa and I like to do, is think, you know, he could come right now. Right now. Now. Right now. (laughs) Now. Now. Isn't that fun to think about? Well, it's not if you're living in sin. If you're walking with the Lord, it's like, I can't wait. Every time I do a funeral, I envy those who die. Right now, Christ could come back. You may never make it home today. Right now. And however long it is until Christ returns, you need to be fleeing from sin. You need to be pursuing righteousness. You need to be fighting the good fight. You need to be taking hold of the eternal life. You need to keep the commandment until Jesus comes back, whether it's right now or after you die and you go to be with him. And think about it. There you would be if Jesus came right now, standing before the Lord of glory. Looking into the eyes of Jesus, whose eyes like a flame of fire, whose hair is like white as wool, feet like burnished bronze, just radiant. You're standing before the Lord of glory right now. You will have no more opportunity to show your faithfulness to Christ by fleeing from sin, by pursuing righteousness, by fighting the good fight and taking hold of the eternal life or keeping the commandment, you'll be perfect then. You'll be glorified. Your opportunity to live for the glory of God on this earth in the flesh will be gone. And when he looks at you and everything becomes perfectly clear to you, which it will, so clear, you're going to think, oh my goodness, what did I do that for? Why did I spend so much time on that? Why did I spend so many resources on that? Why was I so selfish? Everything, all of your 
pursuits, how you loved your wife, how you treated your neighbor, how you served in the church, all of that will become perfectly clear to you. And you will see with perfect clarity godly priorities, godly pursuits, the folly of sin. And will Jesus look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant? You have been a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You have fought the fight. You have fled from sin. You have pursued righteousness. Will he say that to you? I hope so. If you look at your life right now and you realize, no, no, I'm camped out at Camp Sin, then maybe you don't know Christ and you need to repent and give your life to the Savior. You need to ask Jesus to save you and to trust in his death, his burial, and his resurrection for you and be saved. Or maybe you are saved and maybe you've just fallen into some sin that's entangled you. Well, now's the time to wake up. Don't be like the hare who fell asleep on the side of the road while the tortoise ran the race. You may have some great gifts, but don't let those great gifts cause you to idle. Get out of boot camp. Get on the front lines. It's the only way this church is going to be what God wants it to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you because your word is so crystal clear. And every single thing in this text, we have studied before. We have learned before. And Father, we are so grateful for your goodness to us. You have been so kind. Father, we glorify you and just honor you because you're such a great God. You've done so many good things, and you are, and you don't need us, and you don't need this church. But, Father, we do want to have this church glorify you, and we do want to serve you. And, Father, we give you the latitude to do what you want with this body and with each of us individually. But, Father, we hope it's great things. We hope we would be bold in our witness of Christ and standing up for the truth. You would help us to hate sin and help us to love righteousness and to pursue that diligently. Help us to fight the good fight and not be washed down by the stream of our own and lusts taken away by the currents of Satan's temptations. And Father, may we do this all without stain or reproach so that we can be a good example, a model for those around us. And Father, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.